At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and they have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. Today's show with Dr. Jonathan Bektari. Dr. Bektari is the founder and CEO of E7 Health and the founder and CEO of the U.S. Drug Test Centers. And I thought about this show for a second thinking, all right, what do I want to say? How do I want to set the stage for it? And then got talking to Dr. Bhaktari a little bit more and said, you know what? Here's somebody who's going to do it far better than I am. So, Dr. Bhaktari, welcome to Healthcare Americana. It's great to have you. Give us a little glimpse into who you are. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, uh, Christopher. Um, you know, so I, I was um, originally a traditional straight arrow doctor. You know, went to medical school, went to college, straight to medical school, straight to residency, kind of the straight arrow, as we call them, and started practicing. So, uh, well, actually, I did residency and then fellowship, and I got board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary critical care, then joined a pulmonary critical care group and became a senior partner. And so that was sort of chapter one. And then chapter two, you know, went on to do uh, some opportunities opened up where I could do administrative medicine. So I was medical director for, uh, you know, hospital ICU, uh, Department of Medicine. Then I got invited to be involved as medical director in insurance companies like Anthem, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and Culinary Health Fund, and then hospital administrators, um, you know, uh, medical directors of uh, hospitals, uh, utilization management, what have you. And then simultaneously, I was clinical professor in three medical schools throughout my travels. So I got to do the education part, education, hospital, insurance, private practice, clinical, and then subsequently rolled all that into just, you know, starting our own healthcare venture and company. So I guess a more appropriate question that I, I could have taken is, uh, so tell us what you haven't done in medicine. <laughs> right. That's right. Well, you know, I always tell people like, oh, you do so many things. But listen, you do not want me to change your tire, fix your transmission, teach your kids how to play musical instruments. You know, on one hand, people, oh, that's a lot. But there's so you know, like... That's all I can do. Like, don't ask me anything. Oh, maybe a little bit of sports, but that, that's it. Otherwise, uh, you couldn't talk to me about much else. I'm kidding. That's fair enough. Fair enough. So, you know, how have all those experiences led you here? And I, and I do want to use this as an opportunity for you to tell us a little bit more about what you're doing at this stage of your professional life as well. Yeah. So I think, you know, having the sort of what I call the four pillar viewpoint of medicine, which is being a, a clinical doctor being a professor in medical schools where you're teaching, uh, being medical director for insurance companies, then being medical director for hospitals, you know, you have a certain satellite view on healthcare. You can see 
how all four of those, who were, which are very important, by the way, how they intersect each other, you know, the motivations each one has, and, and then how it impacts the patient. And so, I mean, the one thing I got out of that whole inter- interaction and what I saw with my patients is the doctor-patient relationship is very, very artificial in the sense that uh, and I and I've brought up this example many times. I mean, if you went on a first date, and the chef decided to sit at the table with you guys, I, I, you wouldn't have the same conversation. The, the, you probably wouldn't, you know, the same thing. You wouldn't have the same end result if that chef was also contributing to the conversation and asking questions and follow up. And and I know it's a weird example, but so that's I think what happens in healthcare. There are other competing interests that are interfering with the natural doctor-patient relationship, if that makes sense. I think, uh, well, yes. Um, if anybody's familiar with what the work we do at Freedom Health Works is sit there saying, well, yeah, that's that's pretty obvious. You know, you talk about that a lot. And so it's refreshing to hear somebody of your experiences say that because there's a lot of times where, you know, we'll talk to a physician who is just so ingrained in the system and suffering from moral injury. And some people call that burnout. I hate the term burnout. It doesn't do people justice. But they're like, well, what else am I supposed to do? It has to be this way because that's what people tell me it's supposed to do. Right. And I hear that. And I think, you know, it really is a leap of faith for a physician or any healthcare worker who's been ingrained in the system to literally, you know, just get new religion and jump into the deep end. It's every fiber in your body says, I can't live without Medicare or I can't live without private insurance. And I see that a lot. And and, and so the workaround is when people's reimbursements get cut, then they come up with strategies. Oh, well, uh, instead of seeing 15 patients, I'll see 20 to make up for that 25% cut. Or, you know, I'll start selling vitamins in the lobby or I'll start doing Botox, uh, you know, in the side room or I'll start doing uh, cardiac echoes uh, in this other room. But if you really think about it, those are all just it's like a push and pull. You know, the insurance company, if you just look at reimbursements from the 1980s, 90s and now, it's just going in one direction. Right. There's no arguing that, right? No one's going to say, oh, Medicare pays a lot more today than they did in 1990 or 90. That's just not true. You know, you wouldn't start a restaurant, right? You wouldn't get into any business where someone else dictates what you will charge or receive, and you're guaranteed for that to be reduced annually. And that simultaneously, your costs are definitely going up annually, what you pay people, your rent. So who would sign up for that business, right, for any business that someone else dictates your price and the reimbursements will go down whether you like it or not. And so once you, once you digest that concept, there's only, you know, okay, so you can see more patients, you can sell vitamins in the lobby. But, but I mean, that's not what you signed up for, right? You didn't sign up to be a doctor to sell vitamins in the lobby to make up for cuts. Is being a physician an attractive career choice? today as it was when you started? Well, so I, I don't know if you've seen any of my podcasts. I've done a couple of podcasts on, on, on that. And, and I don't want to give you a straight answer for, for, for a really good reason, because it really depends. Like, for example, one of the things that I think people don't understand is when I started medicine, 25% of doctors work for someone else. Now it's 75%, roughly, give or take. 
So when I started the idea, most, most of the people in my med school class assumed they were going to be their own boss. They were going to have their own practice. You cannot make that same assumption today. So if that was one of the reasons you were going into it, I think when I started med school, oh, yeah, you'll, you'll get to practice the way you want. You know, you'll have whatever kind of practice you want. You'll dictate the policies. And now you have to come to the realization, okay, that's not in the cards. Do I still want to be in medicine? And so if that's the primary motive, and I think, you know, if you ever put five physicians in a room, you're going to get five different opinions on how to set up the chairs in the waiting room. They're all sort of fiercely independent. And then you take that, a fiercely independent group and say, hey, guess what? You're not the boss anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, this massive healthcare system now employs you and you'll get an email every once in a while saying, hey, you're spending too long with patients or you're referring too many people to the GI specialists, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it's not a simple answer. I mean, if you come to terms with some of that, the other, I did another podcast where we talked about the amount of these studies that show the amount of time a physician spends during an interaction looking at their computer versus looking at the patient. And the exact numbers escaped me, but it was a preponderance of time. You're looking at a computer screen. And, and there was a whole thing like electronic health records were somehow going to free up providers so they could have like all this one-to-one. What's really happened is it's freed them up to spend a lot more time to make the insurance company happy and make sure they get the maximal reimbursement to check every box on that computer screen. So even that didn't pan out, right? Uh, so, and oh, I, I get interviewed all the time. We're like, well, now that the digital movement is coming, will there be a revolution in healthcare? No, there'll be a revolution in maximizing reimbursements to insurance companies and Medicare and Medicaid. So you could talk to any physician. You know, I, I hire PAs and, you know, I have a lot of physician friends. When they take a new job, I mean, the first thing they say, oh my gosh, that, you know, the EHR is a nightmare. And nobody ever says, oh, because of that, I, you know, I'm getting out two hours earlier. I'm not hearing that. If someone else is hearing that, I'd love to hear from them. I'm not hearing that. Now, look, very few people will tell you this, but here's the thing. I've never seen anyone argue with me about it. I would agree. I would agree. And you're speaking my language. I'm sitting over here and uh, for the folks just listening, I'm fist pumping to what you're saying about you no know, profit revenue maximization. It's not profit. It's revenue maximization from hospitals. And my favorite thing when somebody, you know, when I talk to them, and they're like, oh, well, we can prove our, our quality is this kind of stuff. And I say, well, hold on. How do you define quality? Because that is a buzzword in healthcare that means something to every single person you talk to. So one, I'm curious about your definition of quality, knowing your past experiences and, and your views on this one. And then I'll shed some light on what other people have said. And just I just kind of shake my head on some of the answers that I get. Well, I mean, look, at the end of the day, if I said to you, how do you define quality for an Amazon customer, right? Amazon doesn't get to define it, right? Who defines if they're getting good quality? Who? The customer. So like you go great to e7health.com, e7 we have a button right in the middle of the page on the third night. It says, read customer reviews. We have 10,000 positive reviews in three years from a third party. And the quality and the user experience is what the patient says it is, not what some Medicare survey that a big HMO did that, oh, uh, yes, we made sure everybody, you know, had a colon screening you know, yes, of course, that's critically important. But if it takes eight and a half weeks to see your doctor and 
you're and I and my favorite if you've seen me on any other show, it's my favorite thing. You know, when you call doctor's office, press one, two, and three, then you press three, then it says, okay, now press one, two, or four, you press that, then it says, okay, press two, three, and one, and you press that, and then you go, oh, uh, please leave your name in or we'll get back to you in 2440. You know, that's, they're like screaming from the top of a mountain. When you get that, and I've said this so many times, what are they telling you? They could tattoo it on their forehead. You need us more than we need you. Yep. Right? You If, if you were running any other company, if you made... Almost 100% of your customers endure that process and then say it'll take us eight weeks to see you. You know, try booking a reservation at a restaurant and say, well, yeah, but we can get you in in eight weeks. Uh, How long would would that place be? So anyway, so I think these are the kind of things when you say who gets to determine quality. I say the patient's. I love that answer. Again, like I'm, I'm fist bumping in the in the back over here. Well, you brought the wrong guest then, because I, I, I want to I want to be controversial. <laughs> well, maybe this show's just controversial. Maybe that's okay. the thing, right? Maybe it's just yeah, built into okay. our DNA right here. The shock jocks, you know. If we actually do that, we might actually get picked up by Sirius XM someday, right? Before well, there you go. Piss enough people off. So <laughs> we're yeah, yeah, talking maybe. with Dr. Jonathan Bictari, founder and CEO of E7 Health and founder and CEO of the U.S. Drug Test Center. So you mentioned E7 Health. You are in beautiful Las Vegas right now. This is kind of a fun fact, but I have actually never been to Las Vegas. And people are shocked by that because I don't know. Apparently, I have a reputation. But it's on my list, so don't worry about that. Okay. So we'll, give us we'll host get, you. Good. I appreciate that. Give us a little glimpse into what's going on at E Seven Health. Yeah. So we uh, we started E Seven Health in two thousand and nine. We were actually originally called the Vaccine Center, and what we decided to do is to get in an area of preventative medicine, which now everyone's familiar with, but back in two thousand and nine, nobody was familiar with, which is adult vaccinations. There's about 50,000 vaccine-preventable deaths in the United States annually, and that's a staggering number. It's the you know, same number we lost in the Vietnam War. And we realized that those vaccinations were in several books of business, uh, travel medicine, student health, you know, if you're applying to med school or pharmacy school or whatever, you need vaccines and physicals and titers and TB skin tests and flu shots, what have you. And then employee health, corporate health. There's a multi-billion dollar industry doing employee health, which is not covered by insurance, not covered by workman's comp. Companies have to pay out of that. And so we said, hey, everyone who's doing all five or six, seven of these are doing it as a side hustle. Uh, You know, can we do this as our main thing and get really good at it and write tons of technology? So we have our own electronic health records, portal, uh, appointment online. I mean, everything, texting, whatever. It's all our own proprietary software and scale it so we could open up 500 stores across the country one day. So we have been developing the model. Uh, you know, we see about 20,000 patients a year in those two locations. And we are moving ahead even further with our technology. And I think when you see the 10,000 positive reviews or the almost five out of five Google reviews, which I don't think any medical facility in the country has, it speaks to really our technology and it speaks to our amazing staff an amazing team, both leadership and otherwise. So I think we're doing something very special. I mean, I, I, I think the, the case we were going to make is if you make patients happy, if you make the user experience for the patient and provide them crazy quality, but immensely quick and fast. So with our system, literally while we're doing this podcast, 
Christopher, you could have gone online, made an appointment to be seen at E7, probably drove over there, gotten the service, and gone to your car. The results would have been on your phone, and you could have made it back to the podcast if you needed one of our services. So that was the goal to really, you know, this shouldn't be any different than going somewhere else and, you know, I don't want to reduce it to getting a haircut or whatever, but on some level, why does it have to be eight and a half weeks? You know, why does it have to be, let me call the medical records department. We don't even have a medical records department. Does Amazon have a records department? If you want to know what you ordered on Amazon a year ago, do you call the Amazon record department? It's archaic. I mean, and, but, you know, people say, well, what, what, so why is that? And it goes back to what I said earlier. The prime directive in all this technology has not been user experience, patient quality, patient experience, and provider experience. But there's a reason why my staff can get them out in 10 minutes, because they don't have any forms to fill out. There's no clipboard when the person shows up. And they're doing everything on their iPad, and everything auto-populates, and they're not doing anything redundant, and they're doing the bare minimum. And if they need an authorization, literally they hand the person the iPad. And it's done in a way where you would think technology would be in 2022. Whenever I talk to somebody from a hospital setting, you know, they talk about, well, there's just this triple aim in healthcare. And I, I'm like, okay, let's go down that road, right? How do we get care that's affordable? How do we get care that's accessible? And how do we get care that's quality? And I'm like, you know, the best hospitals out there might get two out of those three, but none of them are getting all three. And so that's why I love working with Freedom HealthWorks. That's why I love about your model and what you're saying right there that, yeah, make it as easy as, as possible for people to buy, make it a great service make them happy and make it affordable. And then boom, you have happy customers. It's not rocket science. It's really not. But you know, one thing that E7 can stand out with in my mind is that, like you said, you don't have to call into this archaic records department. There isn't 15 million layers in between a doctor seeing a patient. And that's the biggest thing in my mind that comes to mind is you took out all the barriers. You took out all the resistance. And then what happens? Two people get together. They share ideas. They share currency. Awesome. Away we go. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. So how does, and I know you're, you're involved in some different business ventures at this point in time. So you mentioned that at E7 Health, do a lot of corporate type of health. How have you seen the, oh, I guess, in the environment of corporate wellness, corporate well-being, corporate health care? How has that changed over the past couple of years? Well, so let me just be clear. So we don't do corporate wellness. And, and this is sort of trying to me explaining to you what ride sharing was 15 years ago. You was, you're like, well, no, so so wait, wait a minute, you're a cab or you're a car? No, no, we're ride sharing. No, no, no. So you must either be a cab or, so when I tell people we do corporate, yeah. they're, they're, they're like, no, so okay, so you do corporate wellness? No, no. You, so you could help corporations like have employees lower their cholesterol and lose? No, we don't, we don't do any of that. And so it's it's it's, a, it's its own thing, and there's billions of dollars that corporations spend on it that nobody knows about. So the best way I can describe it is if you were the CEO of a company, okay, you spend your healthcare dollars in three places, and most people are only familiar with two. You spend it on paying the premiums so your employees can have health insurance and paying through your payroll system, workman's comp premiums, so in case an employee gets injured. But the middle bucket, which is any OSHA-related vaccines, any safety testing, yearly physicals, TB, skin tests, flu shots, those are all out-of-pocket expenses. So when you get a job even at a hospital or a healthcare facility and they give you annual TB, skin tests, and flu shots, 
and do, they give you initial titers and physicals. Insurance doesn't cover that. That is an all-cash business. And so we have contracts with defense firms. Literally, there are Fortune 500 companies that fly in their employees from across the country to Las Vegas because we are the only ones that can do this. So, I mean, Fortune 500 companies are not stupid. And if they could have their healthcare insurance cover this, they would. Why are they writing us checks every month out of their private account and sending us people from all across the country to our clinic if health insurance covers what we do? Now, wellness, health insurance often does cover it. And that's not why we're not in wellness. But this alone keeps us busy enough to do this corporate employee health. And often when corporations find us, they fire the five companies that were one company is doing their flu shot. One company was doing their drug testing. One company was doing their employment physicals. They were sending them somewhere else to get their vaccines. And, you know, vaccines are needed for, you know, security guards, lifeguards, for any healthcare worker. It's a whole thing that it's really hard to understand. But every major corporation writes millions and millions of dollars of checks that is not covered by either bucket. And that's not the reason why we do it. We just did it because nobody was servicing them. They were getting their services. So they were getting their employee physicals at an occupational med center. And that occupational med center was dealing with injured workers, not healthy pre-employment physicals. So they were not geared up for it. Or they were getting their TB scans at an urgent care. Well, urgent care is not geared up for that. They're in urgent care. So everybody, the seven books of business we have were essentially side hustles for other medical facilities. And we said, well, let's take all of these side hustles because there's a commonality because vaccines are involved in all of them and make it our main thing and then drive it with technology. And the reason why actually we became a technology company is because we couldn't find anything off the rack. You know, we can't take a regular electronic because they're like so tied into billing insurance that we're like, no, no, we're not involved in insurance. And it just wouldn't serve our purposes. So if we weren't a technology company, we could not do what we do. And people say, well, aren't you worried someone's going to copy your model? Well, good luck, because they'd have to write all our technology first, because you can't do all these seven books of business, which seem unrelated without having something to tie it all together. That's a long-winded answer, but I hope that helps. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sitting here nodding along because in my mind, we can do all kinds of cool things you know, for the consumer, but so much of that business and, and really where the access is and where the steerage is in healthcare depends on employers. And I'm sitting there kind of smiling a little bit where you're saying, you know, they're flying people in from across the country because their health insurance co- program doesn't cover the basic necessities of what a person needs to either get a job, keep a job, or stay healthy in that job. And I'm sitting there like, why even have it in the first place, right? Why even have it? Well, I mean, I mean, so their argument, so, but here, honestly, let's be, on this side, I'm going to, you know, I've been sort of picking health insurance. So let me, let me stick up for them a little bit on this one, a little bit. I could see the argument said, look, you're getting health insurance company, you're getting insurance from us. So if your employees get sick, we cover them. You know, Bill is not sick. You know, he just needs a yearly flu shot and a drug test to, you know, keep up with OSHA standards or JCO standards, you know. And so I could, I'm not agreeing with it, but at least I could see it. I mean, they have a lot of other issues, but this, they're like, hey, you know, we didn't tell OSHA to mandate this, you know, or we didn't tell JCO to mandate this, or what do you mean your employees need annual hearing tests so if their hearing goes bad, 
You know, if they get deployed to Afghanistan, we know it, it happened when he was in Afghanistan. You know, like, hey, we didn't tell you to send your employee to Afghanistan, you know, if it's a defense firm. I mean, so I kind of get that. I, I kind of get why this isn't covered by insurance because they don't, you would have to call them the poor insurance company. But on this point, they're like, wh- why, why do we need, we didn't tell you to do yearly, uh, you know, titers on, for rabies on people who work in the park district and work with animals. We, we didn't tell you that. So, so I guess on some level, the safety regulatory stuff, it's, you could see how the, an insurance company might rightfully say, look, we're here to take care of people who get sick. And we're not here to subsidize your business in terms of what you need to be in regulatory compliance or keep your employee. You know, we didn't tell you to put them on that job. You're, you'd made that decision. So anyway, I don't know if that helps you. Well, yeah, and, and I'm kind of playing, you know, I think it's ironic that you're talking about OSHA mandating this kind of stuff when there's been government programs that, that laws have mandated insurance for big companies, yet here's government programs that are saying, oh, you need to do this. And by the way, it's not covered here and here and here. So I feel bad for the companies being, you know, whiplash back and forth. Like, what am I supposed to do now? What's going on here? What's no, going to be coming next? They've been doing this for 30, 40, 50 years. We didn't just figure this space out. This has been going on forever. These these regulatory requirements. I mean, when I, you know, when I went to medical school, I had to go get, a, you know, a TB skin test and bunch of vaccines and this has been going on forever and this is this whole industry that i'm sort of describing to you has been here for a long time oh absolutely absolutely and it goes back to it that you're able to provide a great service to people and that's the bottom line that's how you differentiated it yeah well i I think it was really we all started with the you know we were a covid company before covid hit because now you tell talk to people about adult vaccinations they're like oh yeah that's important but really, the main motive was not insurance, not insurance. It was really, you know, let's get into the adult vaccine business and see if we can make a material dent on the quality and save lives. Honestly, that was my initial concept was. And then once we did it, you know, we know one thing. When you look at vaccine rates in terms of, you know, what percent of people get, you know, their Tdap and pneumonia shot and Zostavax and, you know, whatever. All these shots and even any of the adult shots are often related to how many places they're able to get it at. So if there's only one place within 20 miles, you know, how many people are going to get it? So the more points of light there are for adult vaccinations, the higher the rate goes within a population. And when you really think about that, it's directly correlated. You know, you could see it during COVID. The number of places that was giving out the COVID vaccines in any community would directly impact the vaccination rates for that community. And it's a known thing in the vaccine world where, you know, if there's many opportunities to get a vaccine, you're more likely to get it. And also, in the old days when doctors used to, primary care doctors used to carry vaccines, you know, at least they would carry the Hep B and Tdap and, and flu, and now the majority have stopped because of reimbursement issues. But you would go to your doctor for a migraine and your doctor say, hey, you know, Bill, you're, you know, 55, 60. Have you gotten your pneumonia shot? I've got it right over here. My nurse can give it to you. Or have you gotten you know, your shingle shot? You, might, you know, my nurse has got it right here. Let's just get, I know you're here for this ulcer, but you know, let's, let's get you caught up to date on your Tdap. As doctors have said, huh, you know, it's, I'm not getting reimbursed enough. The vaccines expire. 
you know, you got to, you know, give them sub Q or, you know, I am, I can't figure it out. My staff can't figure it out. Let's just let Walgreens do it. Well, what happens then is then the person's right there, physically right there. And you could just, so I think this concept of having vaccines accessible to when people touch the healthcare system is really important. So you come in for one reason, but then you get the vaccines. I think there's a lot of them that is great insight. We see that with you know, in-office dispensing in the states that allow it. Compliance skyrockets. You see the doctor, hey, you need to go on some blood thinner. Here you go. It's right here. Out the door. Away you go. I'm not shipping you down to the, you know, the, your, your pharmacy or whatever it is and making you spin the roulette wheel of pricing when it comes there. It's a brilliant model, and it's it's just built around that convenience. You're treating somebody like they're a human being instead of somebody who's sick and needs to get in and get out as quickly as possible for your own business model, not for their respecting their time. Talking to Dr. Jonathan Bictari here on the show. Dr. Bictari, wrapping up here, I'm curious what's next for you. You you seemingly touched every single part of healthcare. Now you're expanding some fantastic businesses. Where do you go from here personally and professionally? Yeah, well, I, I you know, I think uh, our team and, and myself are focused on evolving our technology. I think we're almost there, but I think we have you know, more work to do to even make it more seamless. And then, you know, to expand and grow it and see, you know, if we can have a regional footprint potentially and, and beyond. So I think that's that's in the horizon for us. But we really want to make sure we systemize as many things as possible. Because if you expand and scale, you don't want to give up on quality and you don't want to give up on experience. And so the question is, how can we expand but make sure we don't have a drop in either one of those? I love it. Dr. Jonathan Bictari, founder and CEO of E7 Health, founder and CEO of U.S. Drug Test Center. Thank you for joining us here on our show. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes, subscribe to our mailing list, and visit our fantastic online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thank you for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.